Hello listener and welcome back to Mind Milk Theory. I remain your host, sometimes contemporary artist, Jim Lockie. Now this season, if you didn't hear last week's podcast, is all about the Anglo-Saxon poem Beowulf. We're going to be digging into it in all kinds of different ways, finding out things about the period, about the poem and just really getting nerdy on some research and some things that I've been thinking about to do with this amazing poem that I don't think gets enough attention. So, if you haven't listened to last week's episode, I encourage you to go back and listen to that. And like I mentioned last week, you'll get a lot more out of this season of the podcast if you are at least familiar with the Beowulf story. Now, the other thing I wanted to do up front before we get into it was to request, if you are listening to this podcast and you enjoy it, please leave me a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. It really does help and it will help the podcast find uh, more people who are interested in hearing about Beowulf. Okay, so... Let's get into it. This episode is titled Uncertain Fate, the Changing Landscape of Destiny in the Anglo-Saxon Mind. This week, listener, we're going to focus on a single word within the Beowulf poem. See how it is treated in the text, but also look at the same concept in some later Anglo-Saxon texts to see how the idea changes over time. This will be an interesting exercise because I don't know about you, but I know I often am guilty of thinking of the early medieval period as something of a monolith, some hazy ancient world of heroes and castles. But of course, that isn't the reality. Culture shifted and changed over this period that spanned centuries. I mentioned in the last episode that Beowulf was likely composed in the mid 8th century. Yet the manuscript we receive was copied down around the year 1000. Beowulf travelled through hundreds of years of history and that changing context will have changed how people received the poem. An obvious example of this changing context would be how the English viewed the Danes in the poem. After the migrationary period they were ancestors but by the late 8th century, there were Vikings pillaging English land. But I digress. I said we were going to look at a single word. That word is W-Y-R-D. Weird. The word from which we get the modern English word weird, W-E-I-R-D, and which is commonly translated to mean fate. Geth a weird swihail shell. That's line 455 from Beowulf. It gets translated differently across the different sources I've been looking at. A translator called Alexander renders this line as fate will take its course. Another, Nichols, offers fate has the last word. Crossley Holland says most accurately fate goes wherever it must. The word shell at the end of that quotation translates to must. It is an imperative. Fate in an Anglo-Saxon conception is often, though not always, intimately connected with one's death. 
It is the idea that one's destined demise is preordained. The word in Old English is weird and in the sister language of Old Norse, which shares the same proto-Germanic antecedent, weird becomes urd and is personified as a deity. By the way, my pronunciations are going to be terrible. Um, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce some of these words, so forgive me. Anyway, um, Urd is personified as a deity. However, in Old English, weird appears to remain a degree removed from being personal. Weird is a force of inevitability. The will of weird in Old English seems to be treated more metaphorically. In a similar way as we might describe the march of time today, we know that time doesn't really have any legs. It's a personifying metaphor that describes an immutable and immovable force. Time, or weird. In line 455 of Beowulf, uh, Beowulf himself evokes the weird, essentially saying that he is locked into his fate and accepting of it whether he lives or dies. Fate goes wherever it must. Hrothgar, the king of the Danes, responds to Bell's selfless commitment to fight for him by talking about the grief already caused by the monster Grendel. In the words of Michael Alexander's translation, My war companions, my war band, are dwindled. Weird has swept them into the power of Grendel. Yet God could easily check the ravages of this fiend. That's lines uh, 478 and 479. I tried translating part of those lines myself and came up with weird swept them into Grendel's terror, which I think is evocative of the dread finality that is in the power of weird. What the poet does in lines 478 and 479, however, is introduce the Christian God to Anglo-Saxon fate conception and thereby he augments our understanding of it within this text. The suggestion is that if God had willed it, even the immutable writ of fate would be forced to change. The poet therefore perhaps is trying to subtly qualify the pre-Christian concept of weird as an agent or outworking of the will of the Christian God. As well as being an attestation to the Christian God's dominion over fate, it also plays into the theme of doom and inevitability within the poem. Having introduced the idea of God as the architect of fate, the idea is again reinforced at the arrival of Grendel, when readers and listeners are reminded that the outcome of the battle is pre-decided. But God was to grant the Yayat people the clue to war success in the web of fate, his help and support, so they did overcome the four through four force of one unweaponed man. The Almighty Lord has ruled the affairs of the race of men thus from the beginning. It is well known to men that the demon could not drag them to the shades without God's willing it. The hand of the Christian God enters the poem a few more times to intervene with fate most notably in the hall of Grendel's mother, when at the turning point of the battle between Beowulf and this even more formidable foe, we read that God granted him victory, 
just at the moment that Beowulf's eyes fall upon a giant sword hung on the wall, which he uses to finish the fight. The sword itself can be seen as a microcosm of the whole poem's religious landscape. Through the sword, Germanic giant myths are twinned with those in the Bible and the Flood. The hilt of the blade, which is returned by Beowulf as a gift to the king, has engraved embellishments depicting how God destroyed the race of giants in the Flood. This is straight out of Genesis 6 if you want to look it up. The sword in Beowulf, however, evokes this story alongside pagan runic symbols. It is a drawing together and reframing of previously distinct mythic pasts. So, within Beowulf, weird seems to be employed in the service of what appears to be one of the poem's broader aims which is an attempt to bring resolution between a Christian present in England and a pagan inheritance from across the sea. Weird is a fascinating word. I've said it's often thought of as meaning merely fate, but it has some more specific characteristics. Look again at its use in Beowulf. Weird swept them into Grendel's terror. Weird is linked with death. It is connected to that final fate, described not just as the circumstances of one's fate, but an agent ushering one towards it, a grim outworker of human destiny. One of the significant things about Weird being present in Beowulf is that it is mentioned without the accompanying distancing language many other pre-Christian concepts receive. There is no mention that this is a heathen belief or a worldly idea. Weird seems to be an idea wholly accepted by the poet, or maybe it's just pliable enough to be acceptable alongside Christian ideas such as the will of the Spirit or the providence of God. Or maybe the idea of weird was just so innate to the experience of Anglo-Saxon peoples that they didn't really consider that it could be at odds with the new Christian belief. After all, it was weird that ushered men to their fates and the intimate prompting of God that revealed the right weapon to turn the fate of the fight with Grendel's mother. This is significant because even though Weird in an Anglo-Saxon conception was not a specifically personified force, i.e. a god or spiritual entity with a discernible will, its corollaries in Old Norse were, and its descendants within English culture have been, take the Weird sisters who connect Weird to the classical fates and make their way into Shakespeare. Weird is mystical and strange as a concept, ever on the cusp of personification, and so you would imagine it to be at odds with Christian belief, and consequently any allusion to weird akin to idolatry. Yet within Beowulf it seems to be tolerated. Like I said earlier, I subscribe to the idea that Beowulf was originally composed in the early to mid-8th century, before the time of Viking raids. Though it hardly seems necessary to add that changes would certainly have been introduced during its journey to the surviving manuscript, which was copied down centuries later, we have no way of knowing for certain if those changes were sweeping or minor. But we can tell that the scribes writing in West Saxon struggled with Northumbrian word forms, so they must have been copying from a significantly earlier version of the text, and seemed to be attendant to try and preserve meaning. They correct their errors 
this seems important to them. So we've seen a little bit about how an old word like weird was handled in Beowulf. Let's look at how it appears in some later poems and see if and how weird continued to be inflected as the period progressed. It must be stated up front that these two examples are just single points and should not be thought of as a synecdoche for the whole culture. They are religious texts and were written within the rarefied air of ecclesiastical powers. A fingerprint of pagan heritage there could point to more widespread acceptance within secular contexts. Taking the earlier of the two texts first, I want to look at The Fates of the Apostles by Kinewolf. Kinewolf is helpful to readers because he signs his work. However, many of his works are pretty dull. And this one certainly turns more that way as it progresses. But its opening lines are achingly beautiful as it describes how each apostle in turn goes willingly to death. Here is an extract. We also heard how learned men in the law narrating the nobility of John, this man, as I have heard, has been to Christ throughout all of time the dearest of mankind. After the King of Glory, Lord of Angels, came by the Virgin's womb onto the earth, the Father of mankind for many years. He taught in Ephesus, and parting thence, he sought the path of life, the joys of heaven, the fair abode. Nor was his brother slow or tardy on the journey. James departed this life among the Jews in front of Herod. By the sword's bite, his spirit left his flesh. The way Kinewolf uses weird has a notably different feel from the sweeping power of Beowulf's weird. Here the apostles are described as if they are warriors, but their honour is not in the battles they fight. It's how willingly each goes to their death. For Kinewolf, the apostles chose their fate in a deterministic sense, and as such their weird has no teeth. Their dignity in not resisting death is the proof of their eternal destiny. In Beowulf, heroism is determined by the great deeds done before death and the extension of one's fame. A good king fights well and leaves plenty of riches behind. It's a kind of heroism which is judged by the poem, of course. Beowulf is ultimately a teleological warning. But the later Christian dispensation is displayed more clearly here in the fates of the apostles. These heroes are honoured precisely because they do not fight and they live aesthetic lives of poverty. The question Kinewolf's text poses for me is this. Is weird treated differently in this text as a result of the later composition, demonstrating a change in culture over time? Or is it because the fates of the apostles is a more outwardly religious text for ecclesiastical use, whereas Beowulf is intended for transmission outside of religious settings? Perhaps thirdly, the difference in the treatment of weird is less to do with the time and context of the manuscripts, but the attitudes of characters within it. Weird sweeps those who are not ready, but for the apostles, it gathers them to their Christ. Our third text supports that last interpretation. It's the latest, 
dating from around the late 9th or early 10th century, and it's called The Wanderer. The poem is about a man in exile, which was a big deal in Anglo-Saxon times. To be without a lord or community made life incredibly difficult. I want to go into detail about this poem because it's so evocative, but I'll settle for reading a slightly longer extract. So, this is from uh, near the beginning of the poem. Frequently, I've had to mourn alone, my cares each morning. There is now no man alive whom I dare reveal my heart openly. And I know it for a truth that in a man it is a noble virtue to hide his thoughts, lock up his private feelings, however he may feel. A weary heart cannot oppose inexorable fate, and anxious thoughts can bring no remedy. And so those eager for good reputation often bind fast their sadness in their breasts. So I, careworn, deprived of fatherland, far from my noble kin, have often had to tie in fetters my own troubled spirit. Beautiful, isn't it? Maybe not in my reading of it, but nevertheless haunting in its melancholic tone. The line we're interested in was from the middle of what I read. A weary heart cannot oppose inexorable fate. What a phrase. Let's hear it in my poorly pronounced Old English. My more direct translation. No weary man can withstand the weird. Within his laments, the wanderer is saying that weird will overtake him. He knows his fate is coming. Yet, at the end of the poem, is these lines, which feel quite a bit different. Where the hero gone? Where is the bounteous lord? And where the benches for feasting? Where are all the joys of the hall? Alas, for the bright cup, the armoured warrior, the glory of the prince, that time is gone. Passed into night as if it had not been. Stands now memorial to that dear band, the splendid lofty wall, Adorned with shapes of serpents, but the strong, blood-greedy spear removed the heroes. Mighty destiny and storms now beat upon these stony slopes. The falling tempest binds in winter's vice. The earth and darkness comes with shades of night. And from the north sends a fierce storm of hail in malice against men. And all the kingdom of earth is fraught with hardship. The decree of fate alters the world beneath the heavens. Here, property and friendship pass away. Here, man himself and kinsman pass away. And all this earthly structure comes to nothing. Thus spoke the thoughtful sage. He sat apart. Blessed is he who keeps his faith. A man must never be too eager to reveal his cares unless he knows already how to bring about a cure by his own vigour. Well, shall it be for him who looks for grace and comfort from our Father in the heavens, where is adorned all our security. So again, the wanderer talks of fate and destiny. 
but this time in a much more positive context towards the end, as he talks about the Christian hope of eternal reward. Perhaps those things that pass are swept away by weird. His description of those things that fade includes heroes and feasts and all those things we find in the narrative of Beowulf. The wanderer says those things are gone, just as he expects himself to be similarly lost to time and to weird. Yet he says for the blessed, comfort from God is their endless reward. So hopefully you've seen in this episode how just one word changes over time. In Beowulf, it still feels like a very pagan idea, but begins to be inflected and layered upon by some later Christian ideas. But by the time we get to Kinawulf and the Wanderer, we see that Weird has changed. It's become a more nuanced idea in the later context. And it's something that, yes, can sweep you away, but also it's something that through piety can be defanged. I'll see you next week, guys. Uh, Who knows what we'll be talking about next time. It's exciting, isn't it? Uh, Please leave uh, a rating and a review if you enjoyed this episode. And I'll see you next time. Bye. Yes, indeed. I will see you next time. There's a bit of background noise in this week's episode. It's just the nature of my recording setup at the moment, I'm afraid. You may have also been able to hear our little hamster having a little drink of water right at the end there uh, as I was wrapping up. So yeah, you want to listen back, see if you can hear that. Just to let you know, the intro music was by Prod Riddiman. You can find him on the internet.